Section 10 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story 10. The Adventure of the Veiled Lodger. When one considers that Mr. Sherlock Holmes was in active practice for twenty-three years, and that during seventeen of these I was allowed to cooperate with him and to keep notes of his doings, it will be clear that I have a mass of material at my command. The problem has always been not to find, but to choose. There is the long row of yearbooks which fill a shelf, and there are the dispatch cases filled with documents, a perfect quarry for the student, not only of crime, but of the social and official scandals of the late Victorian era. Concerning these latter, I may say that the writers of agonized letters who beg that the honor of their families or the reputation of famous forebears may not be touched have nothing to fear. The discretion and high sense of professional honor which have always distinguished my friend are still at work in the choice of these memoirs, and no confidence will be abused. I deprecate, however, in the strongest way the attempts which have been made lately to get at and to destroy these papers. The source of these outrages is known, and if they are repeated, I have Mr. Holmes's authority for saying that the whole story concerning the politician, the lighthouse, and the trained cormorant will be given to the public. There is at least one reader who will understand. It is not reasonable to suppose that every one of these cases gave Holmes the opportunity of showing those curious gifts of instinct and observation which I have endeavoured to set forth in these memoirs. Sometimes he had, with much effort, to pick the fruit. Sometimes it fell easily into his lap but the most terrible human tragedies were often involved in these cases which brought him the fewest personal opportunities, and it is one of these which I now desire to record. In telling it, I have made a slight change of name and place, but otherwise the facts are as stated. One forenoon, it was late in 1896, I received a hurried note from Holmes asking for my attendance. When I arrived, I found him seated in a smoke-laden atmosphere with an elderly, motherly woman of the buxom landlady type in the corresponding chair in front of him. "'This is Mrs. Merrilow of South Brixton,' said my friend, with a wave of the hand. "'Mrs. Merrilow does not object to tobacco, Watson, if you wish to indulge your filthy habits. Mrs. Merrilow has an interesting story to tell, which may well lead to further developments in which your presence may be useful.' "'Anything I can do, you will understand, Mrs. Merrilow, that if I come to Mrs. Ronder, I shall prefer to have a witness. You will make her understand that before we arrive.' "'Lord bless you, Mr. Holmes,' said our visitor. "'She is that anxious to see you that she might bring the whole parish at your heels.' "'Then we shall come early in the afternoon. Let us see that we have our facts correct before we start.' If we go over them, it will help Dr. Watson to understand the situation. You say that Mrs. Ronder has been your lodger for seven years, and that you have only once seen her face. And I wish to God I had not, said Mrs. Merrilow. It was, I understand, terribly mutilated. Well, Mr. Holmes, you would hardly say it was a face at all. That's how it looked. Our milkman got a glimpse of her once peeping out of the upper window, and he dropped his tin and the milk all over the front garden. That is the kind of face it is. When I saw her, I happened on her unawares, she covered up quick, and then she said, 
now mrs marilow you know at last why it is that i never raise my veil do you know anything about her history nothing at all did she give references when she came no sir but she gave hard cash and plenty of it a quarter's rent right down on the table in advance and no arguing about terms in these times a poor woman like me can't afford to turn down a chance like that did she give any reason for choosing your house mine stands well back from the road and is more private than most then again i only take the one and i have no family of my own i reckon she had tried others and found that mine suited her best it's privacy she is after and she is ready to pay for it you say that she never showed her face from first to last save on the one accidental occasion well it is a very remarkable story most remarkable and i don't wonder that you want it examined i don't mr holmes i am quite satisfied so long as i get my rent you could not have a quieter lodger or one who gives less trouble then what has brought matters to a head her health mr holmes she seems to be wasting away and there's something terrible on her mind murder she cries murder and once i heard her you cruel beast you monster she cried it was in the night and it fair rang through the house and sent the shivers through me so i went to her in the morning mrs ronder i says if you have anything that is troubling your soul there's the clergy i says and there's the police between them you should get some help for god's sake not the police says she and the clergy can't change what has passed and yet she says it would ease my mind if someone knew the truth before i died well says i if you won't have the regulars there is this detective man what we read about i beg your pardon mr holmes and she she fair jumped at it that's the man says she i wonder i never thought of it before bring him here mrs marylow and if he won't come tell him i am the wife of ronder's wild beast show say that and give him the name abbas parva here it is as she wrote it abbas parva that will bring him if he's the man i think he is and it will too remarked holmes very good mrs marylow i should like to have a little chat with dr watson that will carry us till lunch-time about three o'clock you may expect to see us at your house in brixton our visitor had no sooner waddled out of the room no other verb can describe mrs marylow's method of progression than sherlock holmes threw himself with fierce energy upon the pile of commonplace books in the corner for a few minutes there was a constant swish of the leaves and then with a grunt of satisfaction he came upon what he sought so excited was he that he did not rise but sat upon the floor like some strange buddha with crossed legs the huge books all round him and one open upon his knees the case worried me at the time watson here are my marginal notes to prove it i confess that i could make nothing of it and yet i was convinced that the coroner was wrong have you no recollection of the abbas parva tragedy none holmes and yet you were with me then but certainly my own impression was very superficial for there was nothing to go by and none of the parties had engaged my services perhaps you would care to read the papers could you not give me the points that is very easily done it will probably come back to your memory as i talk ronder of course was a household word he was the rival of woomwell and of sanger 
one of the greatest showmen of his day. There is evidence, however, that he took to drink, and that both he and his show were on the downgrade at the time of the great tragedy. The caravan had halted for the night at Abbas Parva, which is a small village in Berkshire, when this horror occurred. They were on their way to Wimbledon, travelling by road, and they were simply camping and not exhibiting, as the place is so small a one that it would not have paid them to open. They had among their exhibits a very fine North African lion. Sahara King was its name, and it was the habit, both of Ronder and his wife, to give exhibitions inside its cage. Here, you see, is the photograph of the performance, by which you will perceive that Ronder was a huge porcine person, and that his wife was a very magnificent woman. It was deposed at the inquest that there had been some signs that the lion was dangerous, but as usual familiarity begat contempt, and no notice was taken of the fact. It was usual for either Ronder or his wife to feed the lion at night. Sometimes one went, sometimes both, but they never allowed anyone else to do it, for they believed that so long as they were the food carriers he would regard them as benefactors, and would never molest them. On this particular night, seven years ago, they both went, and a very terrible happening followed, the details of which have never been made clear. It seems that the whole camp was roused near midnight by the roars of the animal and the screams of the woman. The different grooms and employés rushed from their tents, carrying lanterns, and by their light an awful sight was revealed. Ronder lay, with the back of his head crushed in and deep claw marks across his scalp, some ten yards from the cage, which was open. Close to the door of the cage lay Mrs. Ronder, upon her back, with the creature squatting and snarling above her. It had torn her face in such a fashion that it was never thought that she could live. Several of the circus men, headed by Leonardo, the strong man, and Griggs, the clown, drove the creature off with poles, upon which it sprang back into the cage and was at once locked in. How it had got loose was a mystery. It was conjectured that the pair intended to enter the cage, but that when the door was loosed the creature bounded out upon them. There was no other point of interest in the evidence, save that the woman, in a delirium of agony, kept screaming, "'Coward! Coward!' as she was carried back to the van in which they lived. It was six months before she was fit to give evidence, but the inquest was duly held, with the obvious verdict of death by misadventure. "'What alternative could be conceived?' said I. You may well say so. And yet there were one or two points which worried young Edmonds of the Berkshire Constabulary. A smart lad, that. He was sent later to Allahabad. That was how I came into the matter, for he dropped in and smoked a pipe or two over it. A thin, yellow-haired man? Exactly. I was sure you would pick up the trail presently. But what worried him? Well, we were both worried. It was so deucedly difficult to reconstruct the affair. Look at it from the lion's point of view. He is liberated. What does he do? He takes half a dozen bounds forward, which brings him to Ronder. Ronder turns to fly. The claw marks were on the back of his head, but the lion strikes him down. Then, instead of bounding on and escaping, he returns to the woman, who was close to the cage, and he knocks her over and chews her face up. Then again, those cries of hers would seem to imply that her husband had in some way failed her. What could the poor devil have done to help her? You see the difficulty? Quite. And then there was another thing. 
It comes back to me now, as I think it over. There was some evidence that just at the time the lion roared and the woman screamed, a man began shouting in terror. This man Ronder, no doubt. Well, if his skull was smashed in, you would hardly expect to hear from him again. There were at least two witnesses who spoke of the cries of a man being mingled with those of a woman. I should think the whole camp was crying out by then. As to the other points, I think I could suggest a solution. I should be glad to consider it. The two were together, ten yards from the cage, when the lion got loose. The man turned and was struck down. The woman conceived the idea of getting into the cage and shutting the door. It was her only refuge. She made for it, and, just as she reached it, the beast bounded after her and knocked her over. She was angry with her husband for having encouraged the beast's rage by turning. If they had faced it, they might have cowed it. Hence her cries of coward. Brilliant, Watson. Only one flaw in your diamond. What is the flaw, Holmes? If they were both ten paces from the cage, how came the beast to get loose? Is it possible that they had some enemy who loosed it? And why should it attack them savagely when it was in the habit of playing with them and doing tricks with them inside the cage? Possibly the same enemy had done something to enrage it. Holmes looked thoughtful and remained in silence for some moments. "'Well, Watson, there is this to be said for your theory. Ronder was a man of many enemies. Edmonds told me that in his cups he was horrible. A huge bully of a man. He cursed and slashed at everyone who came in his way. I expect those cries about a monster, of which our visitor has spoken, were nocturnal reminiscences of the dear departed.' However, our speculations are futile until we have all the facts. There is a cold partridge on the sideboard, Watson, and a bottle of Montrachet. Let us renew our energies before we make a fresh call upon them. When our hansom deposited us at the house of Mrs. Marylow, we found that plump lady blocking up the open door of her humble but retired abode. It was very clear that her chief preoccupation was lest she should lose a valuable lodger, and she implored us before showing us up to say and do nothing which could lead to so undesirable an end then having reassured her we followed her up the straight badly carpeted staircase and were shown into the room of the mysterious lodger it was a close musty ill-ventilated place as might be expected since its inmates seldom left it from keeping beasts in a cage the woman seemed by some retribution of fate to have become herself a beast in a cage she sat now in a broken armchair in the shadowy corner of the room. Long years of inaction had coarsened the lines of her figure, but at some period it must have been beautiful, and was still full and voluptuous. A thick dark veil covered her face, but it was cut off close at her upper lip, and disclosed a perfectly shaped mouth and a delicately rounded chin. I could well conceive that she had indeed been a very remarkable woman. Her voice, too, was well modulated and pleasing. "'My name is not unfamiliar to you, Mr. Holmes,' said she. "'I thought that it would bring you.' "'That is so, madam, though I do not know how you are aware that I was interested in your case. I learned it when I had recovered my health, and was examined by Mr. Edmonds, the county detective. I fear I lied to him. Perhaps it would have been wiser had I told the truth.' It is usually wiser to tell the truth, but why did you lie to him? 
because the fate of someone else depended upon it. I know that he was a very worthless being, and yet I would not have his destruction upon my conscience. We had been so close, so close. But has this impediment been removed? Yes, sir, the person I allude to is dead. Then why should you not now tell the police anything you know? Because there is another person to be considered. That other person is myself. I could not stand the scandal and publicity which would come from a police examination. I have not long to live, but I wish to die undisturbed, and yet I wanted to find one man of judgment to whom I could tell my terrible story, so that when I am gone all might be understood. You compliment me, madam. At the same time I am a responsible person. I do not promise you that when you have spoken I may not myself think it my duty to refer the case to the police. I think not, Mr. Holmes. I know your character and methods too well, for I have followed your work for some years. Reading is the only pleasure which fate has left me, and I miss little which passes in the world. But in any case I will take my chance of the use which you may make of my tragedy. It will ease my mind to tell it. My friend and I would be glad to hear it. The woman rose and took from a drawer the photograph of a man. He was clearly a professional acrobat, a man of magnificent physique, taken with his huge arms folded across his swollen chest and a smile breaking from under his heavy moustache, the self-satisfied smile of a man of many conquests. This is Leonardo, she said. Leonardo, the strong man who gave evidence? The same. And this, this is my husband. It was a dreadful face, a human pig, or rather a human wild boar, for it was formidable in its bestiality. One could imagine that vile mouth clamping and foaming in its rage, and one could conceive those small vicious eyes darting pure malignancy as they looked forth upon the world. Ruffian, bully, beast, it was all written on that heavy, jowled face. Those two pictures will help you, gentlemen, to understand the story. I was a poor circus girl, brought up on the sawdust, and doing springs through the hoop before I was ten. When I became a woman, this man loved me, if such lust as his can be called love, and in an evil moment I became his wife. From that day I was in hell, and he, the devil who tormented me, there was no one in the show who did not know of his treatment. He deserted me for others. He tied me down and lashed me with his riding-whip when I complained. They all pitied me, and they all loathed him. But what could they do? They feared him, one and all, for he was terrible at all times, and murderous when he was drunk. Again and again he was had for assault, and for cruelty to the beasts, but he had plenty of money, and the fines were nothing to him. The best men all left us, and the show began to go downhill. It was only Leonardo and I who kept it up, with little Jimmy Griggs, the clown. Poor devil, he had not much to be funny about, but he did what he could to hold things together. Then Leonardo came more and more into my life. You see what he was like. I know now the poor spirit that was hidden in that splendid body, but compared to my husband he seemed like the angel Gabriel. He pitied me and helped me, till at last our intimacy turned to love, deep, deep, passionate love, 
such love as I had dreamed of but never hoped to feel. My husband suspected it, but I think that he was a coward as well as a bully, and that Leonardo was the one man that he was afraid of. He took revenge in his own way by torturing me more than ever. One night my cries brought Leonardo to the door of our van. We were near tragedy that night, and soon my lover and I understood that it could not be avoided. My husband was not fit to live. We planned that he should die. Leonardo had a clever, scheming brain. It was he who planned it. I do not say that to blame him, for I was ready to go with him every inch of the way, but I should never have had the wit to think of such a plan. We made a club, Leonardo made it, and in the leaden head he fastened five long steel nails, the points outwards, with just such a spread as the lion's paw. This was to give my husband his death-blow, and yet to leave the evidence that it was the lion which we would loose, who had done the deed. It was a pitch-dark night when my husband and I went down, as was our custom, to feed the beast. We carried with us the raw meat in a zinc pail. Leonardo was waiting at the corner of the big van, which we would have to pass before we reached the cage. He was too slow, and we walked past him before he could strike. But he followed us on tiptoe, and I heard the crash as the club smashed my husband's skull. My heart leaped with joy at the sound. I sprang forward, and I undid the catch which held the door of the great lion's cage. And then the terrible thing happened. You may have heard how quick these creatures are to scent human blood, and how it excites them. Some strange instinct had told the creature in one instant that a human being had been slain. As I slipped the bars, it bounded out, and was on me in an instant. Leonardo could have saved me. If he had rushed forward and struck the beast with his club, he might have cowed it. But the man lost his nerve. I heard him shout in his terror, and then I saw him turn and fly. At the same instant the teeth of the lion met in my face. Its hot, filthy breath had already poisoned me, and I was hardly conscious of pain. With the palms of my hands I tried to push the great, steaming, blood-stained jaws away from me, and I screamed for help. I was conscious that the camp was stirring, and then dimly I remember a group of men, Leonardo, Griggs, and others, dragging me from under the creature's paws. That was my last memory, Mr. Holmes, for many a weary month. When I came to myself and saw myself in the mirror, I cursed that lion. Oh, how I cursed him! Not because he had torn away my beauty, but because he had not torn away my life. I had but one desire, Mr. Holmes, and I had enough money to gratify it. It was that I should cover myself so that my poor face should be seen by none, and that I should dwell where none whom I had ever known should find me. That was all that was left to me to do, and that is what I have done. A poor, wounded beast that has crawled into its hole to die. That is the end of Eugenia Ronder. We sat in silence for some time, after the unhappy woman had told her story. Then Holmes stretched out his long arm, and patted her hand with such a show of sympathy as I had seldom known him to exhibit. Poor girl, he said. Poor girl, the ways of fate are indeed hard to understand. If there is not some compensation hereafter, then the world is a cruel jest. But what of this man Leonardo? I never saw him or heard from him again. Perhaps I have been wrong to feel so bitterly against him. 
he might as soon have loved one of the freaks whom we carried round the country as the thing which the lion had left but a woman's love is not so easily set aside he had left me under the beast's claws he had deserted me in my need and yet i could not bring myself to give him to the gallows for myself i cared nothing what became of me what could be more dreadful than my actual life but I stood between Leonardo and his fate. And he is dead? He was drowned last month when bathing near Market. I saw his death in the paper. And what did he do with this five-clawed club, which is the most singular and ingenious part of all your story? I cannot tell, Mr. Holmes. There is a chalk pit by the camp, with a deep green pool at the base of it. Perhaps in the depths of that pool well well it is of little consequence now the case is closed yes said the woman the case is closed we had risen to go but there was something in the woman's voice which arrested holmes's attention he turned swiftly upon her your life is not your own he said keep your hands off it what use is it to anyone how can you tell the example of patient suffering is in itself the most precious of all lessons to an impatient world the woman's answer was a terrible one she raised her veil and stepped forward into the light i wonder if you would bear it she said it was horrible no words can describe the framework of a face when the face itself is gone two living and beautiful brown eyes looking sadly out from that grisly ruin did but make the view more awful Holmes held up his hand in a gesture of pity and protest, and together we left the room. Two days later, when I called upon my friend, he pointed with some pride to a small blue bottle upon his mantelpiece. I picked it up. There was a red poison label. A pleasant almondy odor rose when I opened it. Prussic acid, said I. Exactly. It came by post. I send you my temptation. I will follow your advice. That was the message. I think, Watson, we can guess the name of the brave woman who sent it. End of the Adventure of the Veiled Lodger Section 11 of The Case Book of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland STORY Eleven: THE ADVENTURE OF SHOSCOMBE OLD PLACE Sherlock Holmes had been bending for a long time over a low-power microscope. Now he straightened himself up and looked round at me in triumph. "'It is glue, Watson,' said he. "'Unquestionably it is glue. Have a look at these scattered objects in the field.' I stooped to the eyepiece and focused for my vision. "'Those hairs are threads from a tweed coat.' The irregular grey masses are dust. There are epithelial scales on the left. Those brown blobs in the centre are undoubtedly glue. Well, I said, laughing, I am prepared to take your word for it. Does anything depend upon it? It is a very fine demonstration, he answered. In the St. Pancras case, you may remember that a cap was found beside the dead policeman. The accused man denies that it is his. 
but he is a picture-frame maker who habitually handles glue. Is it one of your cases? No. My friend Merivale of the Yard asked me to look into the case. Since I ran down that corner by the zinc and copper filings in the seam of his cuff, they have begun to realize the importance of the microscope. He looked impatiently at his watch. I had a new client calling, but he is overdue. By the way, Watson, you know something of racing? I ought to. I pay for it with about half of my wound pension. Then I'll make you my handy guide to the turf. What about Sir Robert Norberton? Does the name recall anything? Well, I should say so. He lives at Shoscombe Old Place, and I know it well, for my summer quarters were down there once. Norberton nearly came within your province once. How was that? It was when he horsewhipped Sam Brewer, the well-known Curzon Street moneylender, on Newmarket Heath. He nearly killed the man. Ah, he sounds interesting. Does he often indulge in that way? Well, he has the name of being a dangerous man. He is about the most daredevil rider in England, second in the Grand National a few years back. He is one of those men who have overshot their true generation. He should have been a buck in the days of the Regency, a boxer, an athlete, a plunger on the turf, a lover of fair ladies, and, by all account, so far down Queer Street that he may never find his way back again. Capital, Watson, a thumbnail sketch. I seem to know the man. Now, can you give me some idea of Shoscombe Old Place? Only that it is in the centre of Shoscombe Park, and that the famous Shoscombe Stud and Training Quarters are to be found there. And the head trainer, said Holmes, is John Mason. You need not look surprised at my knowledge, Watson, for this is a letter from him which I am unfolding. But let us have some more about Shoscombe. I seem to have struck a rich vein. There are the Shoscombe Spaniels, said I. You hear of them at every dog show. The most exclusive breed in England. They are the special pride of the lady of Shoscombe Old Place. Sir Robert Norberton's wife, I presume. Sir Robert has never married. Just as well, I think, considering his prospects. He lives with his widowed sister, Lady Beatrice Falder. You mean that she lives with him? No, no. The place belonged to her late husband, Sir James. Norberton has no claim on it at all. It is only a life interest and reverts to her husband's brother. Meantime, she draws the rents every year. And brother Robert, I suppose, spends the said rents? That is about the size of it. He is a devil of a fellow and must lead her a most uneasy life. Yet I have heard that she is devoted to him. But what is amiss at Shoscombe? Ah, that is just what I want to know. And here, I expect, is the man who can tell us. The door had opened, and the page had shown in a tall, clean-shaven man with the firm, austere expression which is only seen upon those who have to control horses or boys. Mr. John Mason had many of both under his sway, and he looked equal to the task. He bowed with cold self-possession, and seated himself upon the chair to which Holmes had waved him. "'You had my note, Mr. Holmes?' "'Yes, but it explained nothing. "'It was too delicate a thing for me to put the details on paper, "'and too complicated. "'It was only face to face I could do it. "'Well, we are at your disposal. First of all, Mr. Holmes, I think that my employer, Sir Robert, has gone mad.' "'Holmes raised his eyebrows. "'This is Baker Street, not Harley Street,' said he. "'But why do you say so?' 
Well, sir, when a man does one queer thing, or two queer things, there may be a meaning to it, but when everything he does is queer, then you begin to wonder. I believe Shoscombe Prince and the Derby have turned his brain. That is a colt you are running? The best in England, Mr. Holmes. I should know if anyone does. Now, I'll be plain with you, for I know you are a gentleman of honour, and that it won't go beyond the room. Sir Robert has got to win this Derby. He's up to the neck, and it's his last chance. Everything he could raise or borrow is on the horse, and at fine odds, too. You can get forties now, but it was nearer the hundred when he began to back him. But how is that if the horse is so good? The public don't know how good he is. Sir Robert has been too clever for the touts. He has the prince's half-brother out for spins. You can't tell him apart. But there are two lengths in a furlong between them when it comes to a gallop. He thinks of nothing but the horse and the race. His whole life is on it. He is holding off the Jews till then. If the prince fails him, he is done. It seems a rather desperate gamble. But where does the madness come in? Well, first of all, you only have to look at him. I don't believe he sleeps at night. He is down at the stables at all hours. His eyes are wild. It has all been too much for his nerves. Then there is his conduct to Lady Beatrice. Ah, what is that? They have always been the best of friends. They had the same tastes, the two of them, and she loved the horses as much as he did. Every day at the same hour she would drive down to see them. And above all, she loved the prince. He would prick up his ears when he heard the wheels on the gravel, and he would trot out each morning to the carriage to get his lump of sugar. But that's all over now. Why? Well, she seems to have lost all interest in the horses. For a week now she has driven past the stables with never so much as good morning. You think there has been a quarrel? And a bitter, savage, spiteful quarrel at that. Why else would he give away a pet spaniel that she loved as if he were her child? He gave it away a few days ago to old Barnes, what keeps the green dragon three miles off at Crendel. That certainly did seem strange. Of course, with her weak heart and dropsy, one couldn't expect that she could get about with him. But he spent two hours every evening in her room. He might well do what he could, for she has been a rare good friend to him. But that's all over, too. He never goes near her, and she takes it to heart. She is brooding and sulky, and drinking, Mr. Holmes, drinking like a fish. Did she drink before this estrangement? Well, she took her glass. But now it is often a whole bottle of an evening. So Stevens, the butler, told me. It's all changed, Mr. Holmes, and there is something damned rotten about it. But then again, what is Master doing down at the old church crypt at night? And who is the man that meets him there? Holmes rubbed his hands. Go on, Mr. Mason. You get more and more interesting. It was the butler who saw him go. Twelve o'clock at night and raining hard. So next night I was up at the house, and sure enough, Master was off again. Stevens and I went after him, but it was jumpy work, for it would have been a bad job if he had seen us. He's a terrible man with his fists if he gets started, and no respecter of persons. So we were shy of getting too near, but we marked him down all right. It was the haunted crypt that he was making for, and there was a man waiting for him there. What is this haunted crypt? 
Well, sir, there is an old ruined chapel in the park. It is so old that nobody could fix its date, and under it there's a crypt, which has a bad name among us. It's a dark, damp, lonely place by day, but there are few in that county that would have the nerve to go near it at night. But the master's not afraid. He never feared anything in his life. But what is he doing there in the night-time? Wait a bit, said Holmes. You say there is another man there. It must be one of your own stablemen, or someone from the house. Surely you have only to spot who it is and question him. It's no one I know. How can you say that? Because I have seen him, Mr. Holmes. It was on that second night. Sir Robert turned and passed us, me and Stevens, quaking in the bushes like two bunny rabbits, for there was a bit of moon that night. But we could hear the other moving about behind. We were not afraid of him. So we up when Mr. Robert was gone, and pretended we were just having a walk-like in the moonlight and so we came right on him as casual and innocent as you please. "'Hullo, mate! Who may you be?' says I. I guess he had not heard us coming, so he looked over his shoulder with a face as if he had seen the devil coming out of hell. He let out a yell, and away he went as hard as he could lick it in the darkness. He could run! I'll give him that! In a minute he was out of sight and hearing, and who he was or what he was we never found but you saw him clearly in the moonlight. Yes, I would swear to his yellow face. A, a mean dog, I should say. What could he have in common with Sir Robert? Holmes sat for some time lost in thought. Who keeps Lady Beatrice Falder company? he asked at last. There is her maid, Carrie Evans. She has been with her this five years. And is no doubt devoted? Mr. Mason shuffled uncomfortably. "'She's devoted enough,' he answered at last. "'But I won't say to whom.' "'Ah,' said Holmes, "'I can't tell tales out of school.' "'I quite understand, Mr. Mason. "'Of course, the situation is clear enough. "'From Dr. Watson's description of Sir Robert, "'I can realize that no woman is safe from him. "'Don't you think the quarrel between brother and sister may lie there?' "'Well, the scandal has been pretty clear for a long time.' but she may not have seen it before. Let us suppose that she has suddenly found it out. She wants to get rid of the woman. Her brother will not permit it. The invalid, with her weak heart and inability to get about, has no means of enforcing her will. The hated maid is still tied to her. The lady refuses to speak, sulks, takes to drink. Sir Robert, in his anger, takes her pet spaniel away from her. "'Does not all this hang together?' "'Well, it might do, so far as it goes.' "'Exactly, as far as it goes. "'How would all that bear upon the visits by night to the old crypt? "'We can't fit that into our plot.' "'No, sir, and there is something more that I can't fit in. "'Why should Sir Robert want to dig up a dead body?' "'Holmes sat up abruptly.' We only found it out yesterday, after I had written to you. Yesterday Sir Robert had gone to London, so Stevens and I went down to the crypt. It was all in order, sir, except that in one corner was a bit of a human body. You informed the police, I suppose? Our visitor smiled grimly. Well, sir, I think it would hardly interest them. 
It was just the head and a few bones of a mummy. It may have been a thousand years old, but it wasn't there before. That I'll swear, and so will Stevens. It had been stowed away in a corner and covered over with a board, but that corner had always been empty before. What did you do with it? Well, we just left it there. That was wise. You say Sir Robert was away yesterday. Has he returned? We expect him back today. When did Sir Robert give away his sister's dog? It was just a week ago today. The creature was howling outside the old well-house, and Sir Robert was in one of his tantrums that morning. He caught it up, and I thought he would have killed it. Then he gave it to Sandy Bain, the jockey, and told him to take the dog to old Barnes at the Green Dragon, for he never wished to see it again. Holmes sat for some time in silent thought. He had lit the oldest and foulest of his pipes. I am not clear yet what you want me to do in this matter, Mr. Mason, he said at last. Can't you make it more definite? Perhaps this will make it more definite, Mr. Holmes, said our visitor. He took a paper from his pocket, and, unwrapping it carefully, he exposed a charred fragment of bone. Holmes examined it with interest. "'Where did you get it?' "'There is a central heating furnace in the cellar under Lady Beatrice's room. "'It's been off for some time, but Sir Robert complained of cold and had it on again. "'Harvey runs it. He's one of my lads. "'This very morning he came to me with this, which he found raking out the cinders. "'He didn't like the look of it.' "'Nor do I,' said Holmes. "'What do you make of it, Watson?' "'It was burned to a black cinder.' but there could be no question as to its anatomical significance. "'It's the upper condyle of a human femur,' said I. "'Exactly.' Holmes had become very serious. "'When does this lad tend to the furnace?' "'He makes it up every evening and then leaves it.' "'Then anyone could visit it during the night?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Can you enter it from outside?' There is one door from outside. There is another which leads up by a stair to the passage in which Lady Beatrice's room is situated. These are deep waters, Mr. Mason. Deep and rather dirty. You say that Sir Robert was not at home last night? No, sir. Then whoever was burning bones, it was not he. That's true, sir. What is the name of that inn you spoke of? The Green Dragon. Is there good fishing in that part of Berkshire? The honest trainer showed very clearly upon his face that he was convinced that yet another lunatic had come into his harassed life. Well, sir, I've heard there are trout in the mill stream and pike in the hall lake. That's good enough. Watson and I are famous fishermen, are we not, Watson? You may address us in future at the Green Dragon. We should reach it to-night. I need not say that we don't want to see you, Mr. Mason, but a note will reach us, and no doubt I could find you if I want you. When we have gone a little farther into the matter, I will let you have a considered opinion. Thus it was that on a bright May evening Holmes and I found ourselves alone in a first-class carriage and bound for the little halt-on-demand station of Shoscombe. The rack above us was covered with a formidable litter of rods, reels, and baskets. On reaching our destination, a short drive took us to an old-fashioned tavern, where a sporting host, Josiah Barnes, entered eagerly into our plans for the extirpation of the fish of the neighborhood. 
"'What about the Hall Lake and the chance of a pike?' said Holmes. The face of the innkeeper clouded. "'That wouldn't do, sir. You might chance to find yourself in the lake before you were through.' "'How's that, then?' "'It's Sir Robert, sir. He's terrible jealous of touts. If you two strangers were as near his training quarters as that, he'd be after you as sure as fate. He ain't taken no chances, Sir Robert ain't.' "'I've heard he has a horse entered for the Derby.' "'Yes, and a good colt, too. "'He carries all our money for the race, "'and all Sir Robert's into the bargain. And "'By the way,' he looked at us with thoughtful eyes, "'I suppose you ain't on the turf yourselves?' "'No, indeed, just two weary Londoners "'who badly need some good Berkshire air. "'Well, you are in the right place for that. "'There's a deal of it lying about.' "'But mind what I have told you about Sir Robert. "'He's the sort that strikes first and speaks afterwards. "'Keep clear of the park.' "'Surely, Mr. Barnes, we certainly shall. "'By the way, that was a most beautiful spaniel "'that was whining in the hall. "'I should say it was. "'That was the real Shoscombe breed. "'There ain't a better in England.' "'I am a dog-fancier myself,' said Holmes. "'Now, if it is a fair question,' "'What would a prize dog like that cost?' "'More than I could pay, sir. "'It was Sir Robert himself who gave me this one. "'That's why I have to keep it on a lead. "'It would be off to the hall in a jiffy if I gave it its head.' "'We are getting some cards in our hand, Watson,' said Holmes, "'when the landlord had left us. "'It is not an easy one to play. "'But we may see our way in a day or two. "'By the way,' "'Sir Robert is still in London, I hear. "'We might perhaps enter the sacred domain to-night "'without fear of bodily assault. "'There are one or two points on which I should like reassurance. "'Have you any theory, Holmes? "'Only this, Watson, that something happened a week or so ago "'which has cut deep into the life of the Shoscombe household. "'What is that something? "'We can only guess at it from its effects.' They seem to be of a curiously mixed character. But that should surely help us. It is only the colourless, uneventful case which is hopeless. Let us consider our data. The brother no longer visits the beloved invalid sister. He gives away her favourite dog. Her dog, Watson. Does that suggest nothing to you? Nothing but the brother's spite? Well, it might be so. Or, well, there is an alternative. Now, to continue our review of the situation from the time that the quarrel, if there is a quarrel, began. The lady keeps to her room, alters her habits, is not seen save when she drives out with her maid, refuses to stop at the stables to greet her favourite horse, and apparently takes to drink. That covers the case, does it not? Save for the business in the crypt. That is another line of thought. There are two, and I beg you will not tangle them. Line A, which concerns Lady Beatrice, has a vaguely sinister flavour, has it not? I can make nothing of it. Well, now, let us take up line B, which concerns Sir Robert. He is mad keen upon winning the Derby. He is in the hands of the Jews, and may at any moment be sold up and his racing stables seized by his creditors. He is a daring and desperate man. He derives his income from his sister. His sister's maid is his willing tool. 
So far we seem to be on fairly safe ground, do we not? But the crypt! Ah, yes, the crypt. Let us suppose, Watson, it is merely a scandalous supposition, a hypothesis put forward for argument's sake, that Sir Robert has done away with his sister. My dear Holmes, it is out of the question. Very possibly, Watson. Sir Robert is a man of an honourable stock. But you do occasionally find a carrion crow among the eagles. Let us for a moment argue upon this supposition. He could not fly the country until he had realised his fortune, and that fortune could only be realised by bringing off this coup with Shoscombe Prince. Therefore he has still to stand his ground. To do this he would have to dispose of the body of his victim, and he would also have to find a substitute who would impersonate her. With the maid as his confidant, that would not be impossible. The woman's body might be conveyed to the crypt, which is a place so seldom visited, and it might be secretly destroyed at night in the furnace, leaving behind it such evidence as we have already seen. What say you to that, Watson? Well, it is all possible if you grant the original monstrous supposition. I think that there is a small experiment which we may try to-morrow, Watson, in order to throw some light on the matter. Meanwhile, if we mean to keep up our characters, I suggest that we have our host in for a glass of his own wine, and hold some high converse upon eels and dace, which seems to be the straight road to his affections. We may chance to come upon some useful local gossip in the process. In the morning, Holmes discovered that we had come without our spoon-bait for Jack, which absolved us from fishing for the day. About eleven o'clock we started for a walk, and he obtained leave to take the black spaniel with us. "'This is the place,' said he, as we came to two high park gates with heraldic griffins towering above them. "'About midday, Mr. Barnes informs me, the old lady takes a drive, and the carriage must slow down while the gates are opened. When it comes through, and before it gathers speed, I want you, Watson, to stop the coachman with some question.' "'Never mind me. I shall stand behind this holly-bush and see what I can see.' It was not a long vigil. Within a quarter of an hour we saw the big open yellow barouche coming down the long avenue, with two splendid high-stepping grey carriage-horses in the shafts. Holmes crouched behind his bush with the dog. I stood unconcernedly swinging a cane in the roadway. A keeper ran out, and the gates swung open. The carriage had slowed to a walk, and I was able to get a good look at the occupants. A highly-coloured young woman with flaxen hair and impudent eyes sat on the left. At her right was an elderly person with rounded back and a huddle of shawls about her face and shoulders, which proclaimed the invalid. When the horses reached the high road, I held up my hand with an authoritative gesture, and as the coachman pulled up, I inquired if Sir Robert was at Shoscombe Old Place. At the same moment, Holmes stepped out and released the spaniel. With a joyous cry, it dashed forward to the carriage and sprang upon the step. Then, in a moment, its eager greeting changed to furious rage, and it snapped at the black skirt above it. "'Drive on! Drive on!' shrieked a harsh voice. The coachman lashed the horses, and we were left standing in the roadway. "'Well, Watson, that's done it said Holmes, as he fastened the lead to the neck of the excited spaniel. He thought it was his mistress, and he found it was a stranger. 
Dogs don't make mistakes. But it was the voice of a man, I cried. Exactly. We have added one card to our hand, Watson, but it needs careful playing all the same. My companion seemed to have no further plans for the day, and we did actually use our fishing tackle in the mill stream, with the result that we had a dish of trout for our supper. It was only after that meal that Holmes showed signs of renewed activity. Once more we found ourselves upon the same road as in the morning, which led us to the park gates. A tall, dark figure was awaiting us there, who proved to be our London acquaintance, Mr. John Mason, the trainer. "'Good evening, gentlemen,' said he. "'I got your note, Mr. Holmes. Sir Robert has not returned yet, but I hear that he is expected to-night.' "'How far is this crypt from the house?' asked Holmes. "'A good quarter of a mile. Then I think we can disregard him altogether.' "'I can't afford to do that, Mr. Holmes. The moment he arrives—' He will want to see me to get the latest news of Shoscombe Prince. I see. In that case, we must work without you, Mr. Mason. You can show us the crypt and then leave us. It was pitch dark and without a moon, but Mason led us over the grasslands until a dark mass loomed up in front of us which proved to be the ancient chapel. We entered the broken gap which was once the porch, and our guide, stumbling among heaps of loose masonry, picked his way to the corner of the building, where a steep stair led down into the crypt. Striking a match, he illuminated the melancholy place, dismal and evil-spelling, with ancient crumbling walls of rough-hewn stone and piles of coffins, some of lead and some of stone, extending upon one side right up to the arched and groined roof, which lost itself in the shadows above our heads. Holmes had lit his lantern, which shot a tiny tunnel of vivid yellow light upon the mournful scene. Its rays were reflected back from the coffin plates, many of them adorned with the griffin and coronet of this old family, which carried its honours even to the gate of death. You spoke of some bones, Mr. Mason. Could you show them before you go? They are here in this corner. The trainer strode across, and then stood in silent surprise as our light was turned upon the place. "'They're gone,' said he. "'So I expected,' said Holmes, chuckling. "'I fancy the ashes of them might even now be found in that oven which has already consumed a part.' "'But why in the world would any one want to burn the bones of a man who has been dead for a thousand years?' asked John Mason. "'That is what we are here to find out,' said Holmes. "'It may mean a long search, and we need not detain you. "'I fancy that we shall get our solution before morning.' "'When John Mason had left us, Holmes set to work making a very careful examination of the graves, "'ranging from a very ancient one which appeared to be Saxon in the centre, "'through a long line of Norman Hugos and Odos, "'until we reached the Sir William and Sir Dennis Falder of the eighteenth century.' It was an hour or more before Holmes came to a leaden coffin standing on end before the entrance to the vault. I heard his little cry of satisfaction, and was aware from his hurried but purposeful movements that he had reached a goal. With his lens he was eagerly examining the edges of the heavy lid. Then he drew from his pocket a short jemmy, a box-opener, which he thrust into a chink, levering back the whole front, which seemed to be secured by only a couple of clamps. There was a rending, tearing sound as it gave way, 
but it had hardly hinged back and partly revealed the contents before we had an unforeseen interruption someone was walking in the chapel above it was the firm rapid step of one who came with a definite purpose and knew well the ground upon which he walked a light streamed down the stairs and an instant later the man who bore it was framed in the gothic archway he was a terrible figure huge in stature and fierce in manner a large stable lantern which he held in front of him shone upwards upon a strong heavily moustached face and angry eyes which glared round him into every recess of the vault finally fixing themselves with a deadly stare upon my companion and myself who the devil are you he thundered and what are you doing upon my property then as Holmes returned no answer, he took a couple of steps forward and raised a heavy stick, which he carried. "'Do you hear me?' he cried. "'Who are you? What are you doing here?' His cudgel quivered in the air. But instead of shrinking, Holmes advanced to meet him. "'I also have a question to ask you, Sir Robert,' he said in his sternest tone. "'Who is this, and what is it doing here?' he turned and tore open the coffin lid behind him in the glare of the lantern i saw a body swathed in a sheet from head to foot with dreadful witch-like features all nose and chin projecting at one end the dim glazed eyes staring from a discoloured and crumbling face the baronet had staggered back with a cry and supported himself against a stone sarcophagus how came you to know of this he cried and then, with some return of his truculent manner, "'What business is it of yours?' "'My name is Sherlock Holmes,' said my companion. "'Possibly it is familiar to you. "'In any case, my business is that of every other good citizen, "'to uphold the law. "'It seems to me that you have much to answer for.' Sir Robert glared for a moment, but Holmes's quiet voice and cool, assured manner had their effect. "'For God, Mr. Holmes, it's all right,' said he. "'Appearances are against me, I'll admit, but I could act no otherwise.' "'I should be happy to think so, but I fear your explanations must be for the police.' Sir Robert shrugged his broad shoulders. "'Well, if it must be, it must. Come up to the house, and you can judge for yourself how the matter stands.' Quarter of an hour later we found ourselves in what I judge from the lines of polished barrels behind glass covers to be the gun-room of the old house.' it was comfortably furnished and here sir robert left us for a few moments when he returned he had two companions with him the one the florid young woman whom we had seen in the carriage the other a small rat-faced man with a disagreeably furtive manner these two wore an appearance of utter bewilderment which showed that the baronet had not yet had time to explain to them the turn events had taken there said sir robert with a wave of his hand are mr and mrs norlet mrs norlet under her maiden name of evans has for some years been my sister's confidential maid i have brought them here because i feel that my best course is to explain the true position to you and they are the two people upon earth who can substantiate what i say is this necessary sir robert have you thought what you are doing cried the woman as to me i entirely disclaim all responsibility said her husband sir robert gave him a glance of contempt i will take all responsibility said he 
Now, Mr. Holmes, listen to a plain statement of the facts. You have clearly gone pretty deeply into my affairs, or I should not have found you where I did. Therefore you know already, in all probability, that I am running a dark horse for the Derby, and that everything depends upon my success. If I win, all is easy. If I lose, well, I dare not think of that. I understand the position, said Holmes. I am dependent upon my sister, Lady Beatrice, for everything. But it is well known that her interest in the estate is for her own life only. For myself, I am deeply in the hands of the Jews. I have always known that if my sister were to die, my creditors would be on to my estate like a flock of vultures. Everything would be seized. My stables, my horses, everything. Well, Mr. Holmes, my sister did die just a week ago. And you told no one. What could I do? Absolute ruin faced me. If I could stave things off for three weeks, all would be well. Her maid's husband, this man here, is an actor. It came into our heads, it came into my head, that he could, for that short period, personate my sister. It was but a case of appearing daily in the carriage, for no one need enter her room save a maid. It was not difficult to arrange. My sister died of the dropsy which had long afflicted her. That will be for a coroner to decide. Her doctor would certify that for months her symptoms had threatened such an end. Well, what did you do? The body could not remain there. On the first night, Norlet and I carried it out to the old well-house, which is now never used. We were followed, however, by her pet spaniel, which yapped continually at the door, so I felt some safer place was needed. I got rid of the spaniel, and we carried the body to the crypt of the church. There was no indignity or irreverence, Mr. Holmes. I do not feel that I have wronged the dead. Your conduct seems to me inexcusable, Sir Robert. The baronet shook his head impatiently. It is easy to preach, said he. Perhaps you would have felt differently if you had been in my position. One cannot see all one's hopes and all one's plans shattered at the last moment and make no effort to save them. It seemed to me that it would be no unworthy resting place if we put her for the time in one of the coffins of her husband's ancestors, lying in what is still consecrated ground. We opened such a coffin, removed the contents, and placed her as you have seen her. As to the old relics which we took out, we could not leave them on the floor of the crypt. Norlet and I removed them, and he descended at night and burned them in the central furnace. There is my story, Mr. Holmes, though how you forced my hand so that I have to tell it is more than I can say. Holmes sat for some time lost in thought. There is one flaw in your narrative, Sir Robert, he said at last. Your bets on the race, and therefore your hopes for the future, would hold good even if your creditors seized your estate. The horse would be part of the estate. What do they care for my bets? As likely as not, they would not run him at all. My chief creditor is, unhappily, my most bitter enemy, a rascally fellow, Sam Brewer, whom I was once compelled to horsewhip on Newmarket Heath. Do you suppose that he would try to save me? Well, Sir Robert, said Holmes, rising, this matter must, of course, be referred to the police. It was my duty to bring the facts to light, and there I must leave it. As to the morality or decency of your conduct, 
It is not for me to express an opinion. It is nearly midnight, Watson, and I think we may make our way back to our humble abode. It is generally known, now, that this singular episode ended upon a happier note than Sir Robert's actions deserved. Shoscombe Prince did win the derby, the sporting owner did net eighty thousand pounds in bets, and the creditors did hold their hand until the race was over, when they were paid in full, and enough was left to re-establish Sir Robert in a fair position in life. Both police and coroner took a lenient view of the transaction, and beyond a mild censure for the delay in registering the lady's decease, the lucky owner got away scathless from this strange incident in a career which has now outlived its shadows and promises to end in an honoured old age. End of the Adventure of Shoscombe Old Place Section 12 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story 12. The Adventure of the Retired Color Man. Sherlock Holmes was in a melancholy and philosophic mood that morning. His alert practical nature was subject to such reactions. Did you see him? he asked. You mean the old fellow who has just gone out? Precisely. Yes, I met him at the door. What did you think of him? A pathetic, futile, broken creature. Exactly, Watson, pathetic and futile. But is not all life pathetic and futile? Is not his story a microcosm of the whole? We reach, we grasp, and what is left in our hands at the end? A shadow, or worse than a shadow, misery. Is he one of your clients? Well, I suppose I may call him so. He has been sent on by the yard. Just as medical men occasionally send their incurables to a quack, they argue that they can do nothing more, and that whatever happens the patient can be no worse than he is. What is the matter? Holmes took a rather soiled card from the table. Josiah Amberley. He says he was junior partner of Brickfall and Amberley, who are manufacturers of artistic materials. You will see their names upon paint boxes. He made his little pile, retired from business at the age of sixty-one, bought a house in Lewisham, and settled down to rest after a life of ceaseless grind. One would think his future was tolerably assured. Yes, indeed. Holmes glanced over some notes which he had scribbled upon the back of an envelope. Retired in 1896, Watson. Early in 1897 he married a woman twenty years younger than himself, a good-looking woman, too, if the photograph does not flatter, a competence, a wife, leisure. It seemed a straight road which lay before him, and yet within two years he is, as you have seen, as broken and miserable a creature as crawls beneath the sun. But what has happened? The old story, Watson, a treacherous friend and a fickle wife. It would appear that Amberley has one hobby in life, and it is chess. Not far from him at Lewisham there lives a young doctor who is also a chess player. I have noted his name as Dr. Ray Ernest. Ernest was frequently in the house, and an intimacy between him and Mrs. Amberley was a natural sequence. 
for you must admit that our unfortunate client has few outward graces whatever his inner virtues may be the couple went off together last week destination untraced what is more the faithless spouse carried off the old man's deed box as her personal luggage with a good part of his life's savings within can we find the lady can we save the money a commonplace problem so far as it has developed and yet a vital one for josiah amberley what would you do about it well the immediate question my dear watson happens to be what will you do if you will be good enough to understudy me you know that i am preoccupied with this case of the two coptic patriarchs which should come to a head to-day i really have not time to go out to lewisham and yet evidence taken on the spot has a special value the old fellow was quite insistent that i should go but i explained my difficulty he is prepared to meet a representative by all means i answered i confess i don't see that i can be of much service but i am willing to do my best and so it was that on a summer afternoon i set forth to lewisham little dreaming that within a week the affair in which i was engaging would be the eager debate of all england it was late that evening before i returned to baker street and gave an account of my mission holmes lay with his gaunt figure stretched in his deep chair his pipe curling forth slow wreaths of acrid tobacco while his eyelids drooped over his eyes so lazily that he might almost have been asleep were it not that at any halt or questionable passage of my narrative they half lifted and two grey eyes as bright and keen as rapiers transfixed me with their searching glance the haven is the name of mr josiah amberley's house i explained i think it would interest you holmes it is like some penurious patrician who has sunk into the company of his inferiors you know that particular quarter the monotonous brick streets the weary suburban highways right in the middle of them a little island of ancient culture and comfort lies this old home surrounded by a high sun-baked wall mottled with lichens and topped with moss the sort of wall cut out the poetry watson said holmes severely i note that it was a high brick wall exactly i should not have known which was the haven had i not asked a lounger who was smoking in the street i have a reason for mentioning him he was a tall dark heavily moustached rather military-looking man he nodded in answer to my inquiry and gave me a curiously questioning glance which came back to my memory a little later i had hardly entered the gateway before i saw mr amberley coming down the drive i only had a glimpse of him this morning and he certainly gave me the impression of a strange creature but when i saw him in full light his appearance was even more abnormal i have of course studied it and yet i should be interested to have your impression said holmes he seemed to me like a man who was literally bowed down by care his back was curved as though he carried a heavy burden yet he was not the weakling that i had at first imagined for his shoulders and chest have the framework of a giant though his figure tapers away into a pair of spindled legs left shoe wrinkled right one smooth i did not observe that no you wouldn't i spotted his artificial limb but proceed i was struck by the snaky locks of grizzled hair which curled from under his old straw hat and his face 
with its fierce, eager expression and the deeply lined features. Very good, Watson. What did he say? He began pouring out the story of his grievances. We walked down the drive together, and, of course, I took a good look round. I have never seen a worse-kept place. The garden was all running to seed, giving me an impression of wild neglect, in which the plants had been allowed to find the way of nature rather than of art. How any decent woman could have tolerated such a state of things I don't know. The house, too, was slatternly to the last degree, but the poor man seemed himself to be aware of it and to be trying to remedy it, for a great pot of green paint stood in the centre of the hall, and he was carrying a thick brush in his left hand. He had been working on the woodwork. He took me into his dingy sanctum, and we had a long chat. Of course, he was disappointed that you had not come yourself. I hardly expected, he said, that so humble an individual as myself, especially after my heavy financial loss, could obtain the complete attention of so famous a man as Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I assured him that the financial question did not arise. No, of course it is art for art's sake with him, said he. But even on the artistic side of crime, he might have found something here to study. And human nature, Dr. Watson, the black ingratitude of it all. When did I ever refuse one of her requests? Was ever a woman so pampered? And that young man, he might have been my own son. He had the run of my house. And yet, see how they have treated me. Oh, Dr. Watson, it is a dreadful, dreadful world. That was the burden of his song for an hour or more. He had, it seems, no suspicion of an intrigue. They lived alone, save for a woman who comes in by the day and leaves every evening at six. On that particular evening, old Amberley, wishing to give his wife a treat, had taken two upper-circle seats at the Haymarket Theatre. At the last moment she had complained of a headache and had refused to go. He had gone alone. There seemed to be no doubt about the fact, for he produced the unused ticket which he had taken for his wife. "'That is remarkable, most remarkable,' said Holmes, whose interest in the case seemed to be rising. "'Pray continue, Watson. I find your narrative most arresting. Did you personally examine this ticket? You did not, perchance, take the number?' "'It so happens that I did,' I answered with some pride. "'It chanced to be my old school number, thirty-one, and so it stuck in my head.' "'Excellent, Watson.' His seat, then, was either thirty or thirty-two. Quite so, I answered, with some mystification, and on B row. That is most satisfactory. What else did he tell you? He showed me his strong room, as he called it. It is really a strong room, like a bank with iron door and shutter, burglar-proof, as he claimed. However, the woman seems to have had a duplicate key, and between them they had carried off some seven thousand pounds worth of cash and securities. Securities? How could they dispose of those? He said that he had given the police a list, and that he hoped they would be unsaleable. He had got back from the theatre about midnight, and found the place plundered, the door and window open, and the fugitives gone. There was no letter or message, nor has he heard a word since. He at once gave the alarm to the police. Holmes brooded for some minutes. You say he was painting. What was he painting? Well, he was painting the passage, but he had already painted the door and woodwork of this room I spoke of. 
does it not strike you as a strange occupation in the circumstances one must do something to ease an aching heart that was his own explanation it was eccentric no doubt but he is clearly an eccentric man he tore up one of his wife's photographs in my presence tore it up furiously in a tempest of passion i never wish to see her damned face again he shrieked anything more watson yes one thing which struck me more than anything else i had driven to the blackheath station and had caught my train there when just as it was starting i saw a man dart into the carriage next to my own you know that i have a quick eye for faces holmes it was undoubtedly the tall dark man whom i had addressed in the street i saw him once more at london bridge and then i lost him in the crowd but i am convinced that he was following me no doubt no doubt said holmes a tall dark heavily moustached man you say with grey tinted sunglasses holmes you are a wizard i did not say so but he had grey tinted sunglasses and a masonic tie-pin holmes quite simple my dear watson but let us get down to what is practical i must admit to you that the case which seemed to me to be so absurdly simple as to be hardly worth my notice is rapidly assuming a very different aspect it is true that though in your mission you have missed everything of importance yet even those things which have obtruded themselves upon your notice give rise to serious thought what have i missed don't be hurt my dear fellow you know that i am quite impersonal no one else would have done better some possibly not so well but clearly you have missed some vital points what is the opinion of the neighbours about this man amberley and his wife that surely is of importance what of dr ernest was he the gay lothario one would expect with your natural advantages watson every lady is your helper and accomplice what about the girl at the post-office or the wife of the greengrocer i can picture you whispering soft nothings with the young lady at the blue anchor and receiving hard somethings in exchange all this you have left undone it can still be done it has been done thanks to the telephone and the help of the yard i can usually get my essentials without leaving this room as a matter of fact my information confirms the man's story he has the local repute of being a miser as well as a harsh and exacting husband that he had a large sum of money in that strong-room of his is certain so also is it that young dr ernest an unmarried man played chess with amberley and probably played the fool with his wife all this seems plain sailing and one would think that there was no more to be said and yet and yet where lies the difficulty in my imagination perhaps well leave it there watson let us escape from this weary workaday world by the side door of music carina sings to-night at the albert hall and we still have time to dress dine and enjoy in the morning i was up betimes but some toast-crumbs and two empty egg-shells told me that my companion was earlier still i found a scribbled note upon the table dear watson there are one or two points of contact which i should wish to establish with mr josiah amberley when i have done so we can dismiss the case or not i would only ask you to be on hand about three o'clock as i conceive it possible that i may want you s h 
I saw nothing of Holmes all day, but at the hour named he returned, grave, preoccupied, and aloof. At such times it was wiser to leave him to himself. Has Amberley been here yet? No. Ah, I am expecting him. He was not disappointed, for presently the old fellow arrived with a very worried and puzzled expression upon his austere face. I have had a telegram, Mr. Holmes. I can make nothing of it. He handed it over, and Holmes read it aloud. Come at once without fail. Can give you information as to your recent loss. Elman, the vicarage. Dispatched at two ten from Little Turlington, said Holmes. Little Turlington is in Essex, I believe, not far from Printon. Well, of course, you will start at once. This is evidently from a responsible person, the vicar of the place. Where is my Crockford? Yes, here we have him. J. C. Elman, M. A., living of Mossmoor, come Little Purlington. Look up the trains, Watson. There's one at 5.20 from Liverpool Street. Excellent. You had best go with him, Watson. He may need help or advice. Clearly we have come to a crisis in this affair. But our client seemed by no means eager to start. It's perfectly absurd, Mr. Holmes, he said. What can this man possibly know of what has occurred? It is a waste of time and money. He would not have telegraphed to you if he did not know something. Wire at once that you are coming. I don't think I shall go. Holmes assumed his sternest aspect. It would make the worst possible impression both on the police and upon myself, Mr. Amberley, if when so obvious a clue arose you should refuse to follow it up. We should feel that you were not really in earnest in this investigation. Our client seemed horrified at the suggestion. "'Why, of course I shall go, if you look at it that way,' said he. "'On the face of it, it seems absurd to suppose that this parson knows anything, but if you think—' "'I do think,' said Holmes, with emphasis, and so we were launched upon our journey. Holmes took me aside before we left the room and gave me one word of counsel which showed that he considered the matter to be of importance. "'Whatever you do, see that he really does go,' said he. Should he break away or return, get to the nearest telephone exchange and send the single word, Bolted. I will arrange here that it shall reach me wherever I am. Little Purlington is not an easy place to reach, for it is on a branch line. My remembrance of the journey is not a pleasant one, for the weather was hot, the train slow, and my companion sullen and silent, hardly talking at all, save to make an occasional sardonic remark as to the futility of our proceedings. When we at last reached the little station, it was a two-mile drive before we came to the vicarage, where a big, solemn, rather pompous clergyman received us in his study. Our telegram lay before him. "'Well, gentlemen,' he asked, what can I do for you? We came, I explained, in answer to your wire. My wire? I sent no wire. I mean the wire which you sent to Mr. Josiah Amberley about his wife and his money. If this is a joke, sir, it is a very questionable one, said the vicar angrily. I have never heard of the gentleman you name, and I have not sent a wire to any one. Our client and I looked at each other in amazement. "'Perhaps there is some mistake,' said I. "'Are there perhaps two vicarages?' 
Here is the wire itself, signed Elman, and dated from the vicarage. There is only one vicarage, sir, and only one vicar, and this wire is a scandalous forgery, the origin of which shall certainly be investigated by the police. Meanwhile, I can see no possible object in prolonging this interview. So Mr. Amberley and I found ourselves on the roadside, in what seemed to me to be the most primitive village in England. We made for the telegraph office, but it was already closed. There was a telephone, however, in the little railway arms, and by it I got in touch with Holmes, who shared in our amazement at the result of our journey. "'Most singular,' said the distant voice. "'Most remarkable. I much fear, my dear Watson, that there is no return train to-night. I have unwittingly condemned you to the horrors of a country inn.' However, there is always nature, Watson. Nature and Josiah Amberley. You can be in close commune with both. I heard his dry chuckle as he turned away. It was soon apparent to me that my companion's reputation as a miser was not undeserved. He had grumbled at the expense of the journey, had insisted upon travelling third class, and was now clamorous in his objections to the hotel bill. Next morning, when we did at last arrive in London, it was hard to say which of us was in the worst humour. "'You had best take Baker Street as we pass,' said I. "'Mr. Holmes may have some fresh instructions. "'If they are not worth more than the last ones, they are not of much use,' said Amberley, with a malevolent scowl. Nonetheless, he kept me company. I had already warned Holmes by telegram of the hour of our arrival, but we found a message waiting that he was in Lewisham and would expect us there. That was a surprise, but an even greater one was to find that he was not alone in the sitting-room of our client. A stern-looking, impassive man sat beside him, a dark man with grey-tinted glasses and a large Masonic pin projecting from his tie. "'This is my friend Mr. Barker,' said Holmes. "'He has been interesting himself also in your business, Mr. Josiah Amberley, though we have been working independently.' but we both have the same question to ask you. Mr. Amberley sat down heavily. He sensed impending danger. I read it in his straining eyes and his twitching features. What is the question, Mr. Holmes? Only this. What did you do with the bodies? The man sprang to his feet with a hoarse scream. He clawed into the air with his bony hands. His mouth was open, and for the instant he looked like some horrible bird of prey. In a flash we got a glimpse of the real Josiah Amberley, a misshapen demon with a soul as distorted as his body. As he fell back into his chair, he clapped his hand to his lips as if to stifle a cough. Holmes sprang at his throat like a tiger and twisted his face towards the ground. A white pellet fell from between his gasping lips. No shortcuts, Josiah Amberley. Things must be done decently and in order— "'What about it, Barker?' "'I have a cab at the door,' said our taciturn companion. "'It is only a few hundred yards to the station. We will go together. You can stay here, Watson. I shall be back within half an hour.' The old colourman had the strength of a lion in that great trunk of his, but he was helpless in the hands of the two experienced manhandlers. Wriggling and twisting, he was dragged to the waiting cab, and I was left to my solitary vigil in the ill-omened house. In less time than he had named, however, Holmes was back, 
in company with a smart young police inspector. "'I've left Barker to look after the formalities,' said Holmes. "'You had not met Barker, Watson. He is my hated rival upon the Surrey shore. When you said a tall, dark man, it was not difficult for me to complete the picture. He has several good cases to his credit, has he not, Inspector?' "'He has certainly interfered several times,' the inspector answered with reserve. "'His methods are irregular, no doubt, like my own. "'The irregulars are useful sometimes, you know. "'You, for example, with your compulsory warning "'about whatever he said being used against him, "'could never have bluffed this rascal "'into what is virtually a confession.' "'Perhaps not. "'But we get there all the same, Mr. Holmes. "'Don't imagine that we had not formed "'our own views of this case, "'and that we would not have laid our hands on our man.' You will excuse us for feeling sore when you jump in with methods which we cannot use, and so rob us of the credit. There shall be no such robbery, MacKinnon. I assure you that I efface myself from now onwards. And as to Barker, he has done nothing save what I told him. The inspector seemed considerably relieved. That is very handsome of you, Mr. Holmes. Praise or blame can matter little to you— but it is very different to us when the newspapers begin to ask questions. Quite so. But they are pretty sure to ask questions anyhow, so it would be as well to have answers. What will you say, for example, when the intelligent and enterprising reporter asks you what the exact points were which aroused your suspicion, and finally gave you a certain conviction as to the real facts? The inspector looked puzzled. "'We don't seem to have got any real facts yet, Mr. Holmes. "'You say that the prisoner, in the presence of three witnesses, "'practically confessed, by trying to commit suicide, "'that he had murdered his wife and her lover. "'What other facts have you? "'Have you arranged for a search? "'There are three constables on their way. "'Then you will soon get the clearest fact of all. "'The bodies cannot be far away. Uh, "'Try the cellars and the garden.' It should not take long to dig up the likely places. This house is older than the water-pipes. There must be a disused well somewhere. Try your luck there. But how did you know of it, and how was it done? I'll show you first how it was done, and then I will give the explanation which is due to you. And even more to my long-suffering friend here, who has been invaluable throughout. But first I would give you an insight into this man's mentality— it is a very unusual one, so much so that I think his destination is more likely to be broad more than the scaffold. He has, to a high degree, the sort of mind which one associates with the medieval Italian nature rather than with the modern Briton. He was a miserable miser who made his wife so wretched by his niggardly ways that she was a ready prey for any adventurer. Such a one came upon the scene in the person of this chess-playing doctor. Amberley excelled at chess, one Mark Watson of a scheming mind. Like all misers, he was a jealous man, and his jealousy became a frantic mania. Rightly or wrongly, he suspected an intrigue. He determined to have his revenge, and he planned it with diabolical cleverness. Come here. Holmes led us along the passage with as much certainty as if he had lived in the house, and halted at the open door of the strong-room. Who? "'What an awful smell of paint!' cried the inspector. "'That was our first clue,' said Holmes. 
You can thank Dr. Watson's observation for that, though he failed to draw the inference. It set my foot upon the trail. Why should this man, at such a time, be filling his house with strong odours? Obviously to cover some other smell which he wished to conceal, some guilty smell which would suggest suspicions. Then came the idea of a room such as you see here with iron door and shutter, a hermetically sealed room. Put those two facts together, and whither do they lead? I could only determine that by examining the house myself. I was already certain that the case was serious, for I had examined the box-office chart at the Haymarket Theatre, another of Dr. Watson's bull's-eyes, and ascertained that neither B-30 nor 32 of the upper circle had been occupied that night. Therefore, Amberley had not been to the theatre, and his alibi fell to the ground. He made a bad slip when he allowed my astute friend to notice the number of the seat taken for his wife. The question now arose how I might be able to examine the house. I sent an agent to the most impossible village I could think of, and summoned my man to it at such an hour that he could not possibly get back. To prevent any miscarriage, Dr. Watson accompanied him. The good vicar's name I took, of course, out of my Crockford. Do I make it all clear to you? It is masterly said the inspector, in an awed voice. There being no fear of interruption, I proceeded to burgle the house. Burglary has always been an alternative profession, had I cared to adopt it, and I have little doubt that I should have come to the front. Observe what I found. You see the gas-pipe along the skirting here. Very good. It rises in the angle of the wall, and there is a tap here in the corner. The pipe runs out into the strong-room, as you can see, and ends in that plaster rose in the centre of the ceiling, where it is concealed by the ornamentation. That end is wide open. At any moment, by turning the outside tap, the room could be flooded with gas. With door and shutter closed, and the tap full on, I would not give two minutes of conscious sensation to anyone shut up in that little chamber." By what devilish device he decoyed them there, I do not know, but once inside the door they were at his mercy. The inspector examined the pipe with interest. One of our officers mentioned the smell of gas, said he, but, of course, the window and door were open then, and the paint, or some of it, was already about. He had begun the work of painting the day before, according to his story. But what next, Mr. Holmes? Well, then came an incident which was rather unexpected to myself. I was slipping through the pantry window in the early dawn when I felt a hand inside my collar, and a voice said, Now, you rascal, what are you doing in there? When I could twist my head round, I looked into the tinted spectacles of my friend and rival, Mr. Barker. It was a curious foregathering, and set us both smiling. It seems that he had been engaged by Dr. Ray Ernest's family to make some investigations, and had come to the same conclusion as to foul play. He had watched the house for some days, and had spotted Dr. Watson as one of the obviously suspicious characters who had called there. He could hardly arrest Watson, but when he saw a man actually climbing out of the pantry window, there came a limit to his restraint. Of course, I told him how matters stood, and we continued the case together. Why him? 
Why not us? Because it was in my mind to put that little test which answered so admirably. I fear you would not have gone so far. The inspector smiled. Well, maybe not. I understand that I have your word, Mr. Holmes, that you step right out of the case now, and that you turn all your results over to us. Certainly. That is always my custom. Well, in the name of the force, I thank you. It seems a clear case, as you put it, and there can't be much difficulty over the bodies. I'll show you a grim little bit of evidence, said Holmes, and I am sure Amberley himself never observed it. You'll get results, Inspector, by always putting yourself in the other fellow's place and thinking what you would do yourself. It takes some imagination, but it pays. Now, we will suppose that you were shut up in this little room, had not two minutes to live, but wanted to get even with the fiend who was probably mocking at you from the other side of the door. What would you do? Write a message. Exactly. You would like to tell people how you died. No use writing on paper. That would be seen. If you wrote on the wall, some eye might rest upon it. Now, look here. Just above the skirting is scribbled with a purple, indelible pencil, we w That's all. What do you make of that? Well, it's only a foot above the ground. The poor devil was on the floor and dying when he wrote it. He lost his senses before he could finish. He was writing we were murdered. That's how I read it. If you find an indelible pencil on the body... We look out for it, you may be sure. But those securities... Clearly there was no robbery at all. And yet he did possess those bonds. We verified that. You may be sure he has hidden them in a safe place. When the whole elopement had passed into history, he would suddenly discover them, and announce that the guilty couple had relented and sent back the plunder, or had dropped it on the way. "'You certainly seem to have met every difficulty,' said the inspector. "'Of course he was bound to call us in.' Why he should have gone to you, I can't understand. Pure swank, Holmes answered. He felt so clever and so sure of himself that he imagined no one could touch him. He could say to any suspicious neighbor, Look at the steps I have taken. I have consulted not only the police, but even Sherlock Holmes. The inspector laughed. We must forgive your even, Mr. Holmes, said he. It's as workmanlike a job as I can remember. A couple of days later, my friend tossed across to me a copy of the bi-weekly North Surrey Observer. Under a series of flaming headlines, which began The Haven Horror and ended with Brilliant Police Investigation, there was a packed column of print which gave the first consecutive account of the affair. The concluding paragraph is typical of the whole. It ran thus. The remarkable acumen by which Inspector McKinnon has deduced from the smell of paint that some other smell, that of gas, for example, might be concealed. The bold deduction that the strong room might also be the death chamber and the subsequent inquiry which led to the discovery of the bodies in a disused well, cleverly concealed by a dog kennel, should live in the history of crime as a standing example of the intelligence of our professional detectives. "'Well, well, McKinnon is a good fellow,' said Holmes, with a tolerant smile. "'You can file it in our archives, Watson.' 
Some day the true story may be told. End of the Adventure of the Retired Colorman End of the Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle